10.55 p.m. on April the 14th, 1912, the California, a freighter crossing the Atlantic, sent a warning to a nearby ocean liner. This is what the log said. We are stopped and surrounded by ice. The liner's radio operator, backlogged with passenger messengers, sent back a reply. And again, I quote, Shut up, shut up, I'm busy. And the ship proceeded ahead, full speed, 22 knots. The name of the ship was Titanic. And the rest as they say, is history. The Titanic hit an iceberg some three hours later, sank within three hours with a loss of over 1,500 lives. The warning was ignored because crew and passengers believed they had nothing to fear for they were on the largest passenger steamship in the world declared by the shipbuilder magazine to be, and again I quote, practically unsinkable. Over two and a half thousand years ago, a nation, the nation of Judah, lived in a state of similar complacency. No matter that they were a tiny nation sandwiched between two superpowers, Egypt to the south and to the north and east, Babylon. They weren't worried because their land, their city, their temple were the place where the Lord, the one true God, had promised to live among them. So, they were safe no matter how they lived or what they did. But they were wrong, terribly, tragically wrong, for their behaviour was about to bring God's judgment upon their heads. Their land would be reduced to rubble, their people decimated, their temple raised to the ground and any survivors among them would be carried off into exile. But before that happened, God sent them a final warning. Not through an impersonal message, like a telegram, but through a personal messenger, through a prophet, a spokesman of God, named Jeremiah. And so on one particular day, as thousands of worshippers thronged through the streets of Jerusalem to climb up the hill to enter the temple courts, the Lord told Jeremiah, go and stand at the gate and I want you to deliver a shocking sermon. And you'll find it recorded as we continue our series in Jeremiah 
in Jeremiah 7. So turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah 7. If you don't have a Bible, you need one. Just look around. There are Bibles around. Just sort of wave your hand and someone will pass you one. Page 764. And as we listen to it together, all these years later, whatever you do, don't fall into a similar state of complacency as the original hearers did, believing that what God said then has no possible relevance to us now. It does. Believe me. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. Friends, imagine the scene, all right? Somebody was stood at the gates of Charlotte Chapel saying these words. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow the gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place in the land I gave to your forefathers forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we're safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will do now to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place that I gave to you and your fathers. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did to all your brothers, the people of Ephraim." So do not pray for this people, nor offer any plea or petition for them. Do not plead with them, for I will not listen to you. Do you not see what they're doing in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers light the fire, the women knead the dough and make cakes of bread for the Queen of Heaven. They pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. But am I the one they're provoking, declares the Lord? Are they not rather harming themselves to their own shame? Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, My anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, on man and beast, on the trees of the field, on the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, Go ahead, add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourselves. For when I brought your forefathers out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command, Obey me, and I will be your God, and you'll be my people. Walk in all the ways I command you, that it may go well with you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclination of their evil hearts. They went backward, not forward. 
from the time your forefathers left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, I sent you my servants, the prophets, but they did not listen to me or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and did more evil than their forefathers. When you tell them all this, they will not listen to you. When you call to them, they will not answer. Therefore say to them, this is the nation that has not obeyed the Lord its God or responded to correction. Truth has perished. It has vanished from their lips. Cut off your hair, throw it away, take up a lament on the barren heights, for the Lord has rejected and abandoned this generation that is under his wrath. The people of Judah have done evil in my eyes, declared the Lord. They have set up their detestable idols in the house that bears my name and have defiled it. They have built the high places of Topheth in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. So beware, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call it Topheth or the valley of Ben-Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, for they will bury the dead in Topheth until there is no more room. Then the carcasses of this people will become food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, There'll be no one to fright them away. I'll bring an end to the sounds of joy and gladness and to the voice of bride and bridegroom in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, for the land will become desolate. At that time, declares the Lord, the bones of the kings and officials of Judah, the bones of the priests and prophets, the bones of the people of Jerusalem will be removed from their graves. They'll be exposed to the sun and moon and all the stars of the heavens which they have lived and served, which they have followed and consulted and worshipped, they will not be gathered up or buried, but will be like refuse lying on the ground. Wherever I banish them, all the survivors of this evil nation will prefer death to life, declares the Lord Almighty. This is God's shocking word. Just let's pray a moment before we look at it together. Lord, we thank you for the warnings as well as the promises of your word. So we pray again that by your spirit you will take your word to comfort the disturbed and to disturb the comfortable. We ask it as always for your glory. Amen. We all know what a, a shock to the system is. Nietzsche and I saw one last weekend. We were in Northern Ireland and we sat in a restaurant in Portrush overlooking the sea and watched a guy leap into the sea with a surfboard. Listen, it was a shock to my system and I was sat in the warm cafe watching him. And Jeremiah's sermon is an attempt to administer a shock to the belief system of the people of Judah to pour ice cold water on the cherished convictions of the worshippers and the first shock he administers is regarding if you look at the text in front of you is concerned with what they say so if you want a summary of this, his little phrase worthless words it's very important to notice when Jeremiah preached this sermon it was not during the dark days of King Manasseh, his grandfather, uh, the grandfather of King Josiah, the most evil ruler 
to ever sit on the throne, when for 55 years the nation had spiralled into ever-increasing depths of depravity in which sexual licence and hideous occult practices had pervaded every aspect of society, culminating in the worst thing of all, when the king had taken one of his own son or sons and burnt them on an altar to a heathen god. Even the holiest place of all, the temple, had been taken over by such practices. Those were the days in which Jeremiah grew up, but they were not the days in which he preached his sermon. All of this had changed when in an amazing providence of God, Manasseh's grandson, the boy king Josiah, had come to the throne and turned the nation back to God. And spring cleaning the temple one day, preparing it for worship again, they discovered an old scroll. And as they read it, it was the law of the Lord, probably our book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, which told the people how they should live and told them what would happen if they strayed from the Lord. And when Josiah read this, he was deeply alarmed. He called in all the leaders of the nation and he called the people back to the Lord. He instituted a program of radical reform, tore down the idol altars, deposed the pagan priests, restored the temple to its pristine glory. Now, that was the state of affairs when Jeremiah preached this sermon to hundreds of worshippers crowding the temple for one of the great festivals that the Lord had commanded in the law of Moses. That was the situation. His people were worshipping in the right place, saying the right words, but Jeremiah says to them as they crowd through the doors, you are fooling yourselves. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Verse 4. These words alone, repeated three times, they're using them like a magic mantra to ward off evil. No, the Lord says, that's not enough. The solution is, your deeds must match your words. And he gives them a threefold condition to their threefold response. He says you must deal with each other justly. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, he says you must treat others fairly. If you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless, the widow, do not shed innocent blood in this place, you must worship the Lord only, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, if, if, if they do these things, if they really change their ways and their actions, then the Lord gives them a promise. Then I will let you live in this place in the land I gave to your forefathers forever and ever. But the people, frankly, do not believe it. They believe their words are enough to keep them safe. And that is the problem which the Lord exposes through Jeremiah's shocking sermon. He says, but look, you're trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. In fact, he goes on to say, and if you look at it very carefully, I don't have time to go through it, he actually goes through almost all of the Ten Commandments and says you're breaking every one of them. Stealing, murder, adultery, perjury, following other gods. They couldn't plead ignorance. It was all in the scroll that Josari discovered. He'd sent preachers throughout the land to proclaim it. They knew what God demanded. But the people were guilty of breaking all these commandments and they treated the Lord's house like a kind of safe house. You do all this and then you come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we're safe. Safe to do all these detestable things. 
Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? They're like a band of robbers who go out as highwaymen, robbing and stealing, looting and pillaging, and then they run back to the temple and say, we're safe now, you can't touch us. Now what I want to say this morning, listen carefully, challenge me and I think it will challenge you. Such practices are all too common, not among the godless, but among the religious. Common practice. The godless don't say anything about God. The Lord Jesus Christ actually quoted these words, if you know the gospel stories. He quoted these words of Jeremiah when he cleared out the Jerusalem temple of his day from corrupt money changers. Look what Jesus did. He entered the temple, drove out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers, the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said. What Jeremiah said has been written down. My house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. At the conclusion of the greatest sermon ever preached, his Sermon on the Mount, notice what Jesus said. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Yes, worship is important. Being with God's people on the Lord's day. It's great to see you here. Yes, words are important. What we say and what we believe and what we affirm. But words alone are not enough. Words alone are worthless. And never are we in more apparent danger, real danger, when there is the outward appearance that all is well. You see, the media love to write these reports about, you know, the church is going down the tubes. Nobody goes to church anymore. Things are in decline. And quite a lot of people in the church, quite rightly, were concerned about that. But you'll never see reported in the press the greater danger, which is when the churches are full. When Christians all say the right things. When the words of the worshippers do not match their deeds. You want a fascinating book on Jeremiah. I think it's been reprinted under another title. Uh, but Eugene Peterson, the American Presbyterian pastor and uh, Bible translator, he did the New Living Translation. He wrote a book on Jeremiah called Run with the Horses. From a verse later on, we'll come to in Jeremiah. This is what he says The church is never in so much danger as when it is popular and millions of people are saying, I'm born again, I'm born again, I'm born again. So, I simply ask you as I ask myself, do your words match your deeds? Do your deeds match your words? Do the songs we sing in church mirror our true experience? Peterson goes on, places are important, immensely important, but standing in a church singing a hymn doesn't make us holy any more than standing in a barn neighing makes you a horse. And I have to tell you this, you can fool all of the people all of the time if you're a good Christian actor or as the Greek word is, hypocrite. But you can't fool God because God says, but I have been watching, declares the Lord. So that's the first shock in this shocking sermon. It really is a shocking thing to say, is it not? But it's not the worst. For his message moves on to a second shocking theme. 
After worthless words, the second theme in this passage, in this great sermon is pointless prayers. You see, Jeremiah said all this and the people weren't at all convinced. They believed they were safe in the temple. Why did they believe they were safe in the temple? Because God had said so. It was in the hymn book. No doubt their favourite hymn was Psalm 132. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling. This is my resting place forever and ever. He will I sit in throne for I have desired it. But Jeremiah claims and says, God's promises, all his promises, this promise is conditional upon your obedience. And by way of example, he says to the people, he's trying to shake them again out of their complacency to pour cold water on them. He says, take a field trip up the road from Jerusalem. Go and visit a place called Shiloh. Now, Shiloh probably doesn't mean anything to you. Not the one in Israel anyway. But he says there's a lesson you need to learn from the past. When the people of Israel first arrived in the Promised Land, you remember they were delivered from Egypt and spent 40 years wandering the wilderness. They finally crossed over the River Jordan. They got into the Promised Land. And Joshua set up his headquarters in the middle of the land at a place called Shiloh. More importantly, they brought the Ark of the Covenant, which was the place where God had promised to dwell and make himself known to his people, they placed it in Shiloh. Shiloh was the place where the Lord chose as his dwelling. But following the disobedience of the people of Israel at the end of the life of Samuel the prophet, Shiloh became the place the Lord abandoned as his dwelling place. Jerry reminds the people, go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. Verse 12. He's saying, take a field trip to Shiloh and all you'll see is a field. In fact, if he wanted to, he could have said, let's not sing number 132, let's sing number 78. They angered him with their high places. They aroused his jealousy with their idols. When God heard them, he was very angry. He rejected Israel completely, abandoned the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent he had set up among men. After abandoning Shiloh, the Lord chose Jerusalem as his dwelling place. As the Ark of the Covenant was moved there during the time of King David, and then under instruction from the Lord, David's son Solomon built this magnificent temple, and this is the place where God promised to dwell among his people. But the Lord says, now just think about this. I did it once before at Shiloh. There is nothing to stop me doing it again. In fact, I will do it again. There will be a repeat performance if you don't change your ways. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your fathers. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did your brothers, the people of Ephraim. Friends, we're going to be praying this week, these 40 days for our city. There are Shilohs littered throughout Edinburgh. Throughout Scotland, the land that was the land of the book. I know they're only buildings, but they're places where people met together and honoured God's name and praised the name of Jesus. And they're abandoned. They're theme pubs, restaurants, mosques, temples. And if you say it could never happen to Charlotte Chapel, think again. 
Oh, there's crowds of people here. It's our 200th anniversary next year. We're only here because of God's grace. But if we disobey the Lord and go our own way, Charlotte Chapel could end up like Shiloh. I say that as the pastor. It's not my desire. Pray to God it will never happen. But I would be a fool to say it never could happen. The history of Israel says otherwise. So, what does Jeremiah do in these terrible circumstances? The Lord says, I'm going to make this place like Shiloh. Well, what does any prophet do? Well, you pray. And this shocking sermon gets worse because the Lord says to him, a chilling command, he says, this is what's going to happen, so do not pray for this people, nor offer any plea or petition for them. Do not plead to them, for I will not listen to you. It's almost unheard of. Here's Abraham over Sodom and Gomorrah, the most wicked cities in the world. He intercedes with the Lord and prays for them. Here's Moses coming down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments. The people are worshipping a golden calf and indulging in mass immorality. And what does he do? He goes away and he prays to the Lord for them. Here's Samuel the prophet at the end of his life. And the people have rejected the Lord and want a king of their own. And Samuel says, God forbid that I should cease to pray for you. More recent history. Here's King Hezekiah with Isaiah the prophet and the surrounding Assyrian army. And he prays to the Lord, Lord, save the city. And the angel of death moves in and decimates the Assyrian army. But Jeremiah is told, don't pray. It is a waste of time. For the Lord will not listen to them. Why not? Well, the Lord gives Jeremiah's reasons, as he always does. He says, the Lord will not listen because of what they are doing to him. Verse 17, do you not see what they're doing in the towns of Judah? In the streets of Jerusalem, the children gather wood, the fathers light the fire, the women knead the dough, they make cakes of bread for the Queen of Heaven, they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, you watch these people going up to church, But what they do in the temple is very different to what they're doing in their homes. Whole families meet together to participate in the idol worship of the old Canaanite fertility goddess recycled in every generation. The goddess of fertility and sex. Wonderfully appealing. Should ring some bells. I don't need to go into it. Just open your newspaper. And they worship this queen of heaven. Friends, there is no queen in heaven, only a king. King Jesus. Everything else is idolatry. You see, our real allegiance is seen not just coming together in church on Sunday, it is seen in our family life during the week. We used to say, you know, the family that prays together stays together. The family that strays together strays apart from God. We may not worship female goddesses in our rooms, fashioned into idols, but our children see what we really worship and will readily join in. So people say, the number of times I've heard people say, it's the most stupid thing. They say, I'm not going to force any religion on my children, I'll just let them make up their own mind. And they will make up their own mind. They'll follow your religion. A religion that worships material things. To live for self and pleasure. And they'll grow up godless. 
That's why we've come together to pray for this family. We pray for the families in this church. We live in difficult days. We need to pray for one another. So what does the Lord feel about this? Well, some of us have got the wrong idea about the Lord. You see, we think the Lord just smiles benignly and says, Oh, dearie, dearie me, I'm really sad about this. Yes, he is very sad, but he's also very angry. We stop believing in the anger of God to our detriment. But ultimately, you see, the tragic thing is, we fail to derive any real benefit from the idols we worship because they always mutilate and do us harm. Because of what they do to themselves. But am I the one they're provoking, declares the Lord? Are they not really harming themselves to their own shame? In his book of sermons, which I've recommended, Save Your Pennies Up and Buy It, by Philip and he says, God's main point is not that he will punish you when you worship idols, but that you are punishing yourself when you worship them. Remember, false gods always abuse their worshippers. Satan wants a piece of your soul or your body or both. He lusts after you and has an infernal plan for your life. Now for the people of Israel, that plan was so far gone that all that awaited was certain judgment. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, My anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, on man and beast, on the trees of the field, on the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. It is too late to pray for these people. Such prayers are pointless prayers. Now, this is just a terrible thing. 600 years after this, the Lord Jesus Christ wept over this same city as he prepared to enter it for the final time before he died outside it. A lament for a city. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, Jesus wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. It's too late. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within the walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of the Lord's coming to you. Don't believe this nonsense about, you know, oh, it's Jeremiah. Why are we doing Jeremiah? It's Old Testament. You know, it's all about judgment and everything. Jesus said something different. No, he did not. We'll see in a moment, thankfully, that he offered amazing grace. And and you need to notice something about these words. When Jesus said these words about Jerusalem, what would happen? It would be 40 years before the Roman legions led by Titus entered Jerusalem and fulfilled the prophecy. But already, it was too late. See, God's judgment works like that. You can be under God's judgment. See, you reap what you sow, but God doesn't always harvest in October. Now, let's be clear about this before we move on to the final point. What the Lord said to Jeremiah, he does not say to us, thankfully. We are to pray for our city, to pray for our nation, to pray for our families because we live in the day of grace, a day in which, as we've sung, before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect priest, a plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me, and I can plead for you and for our nation. So in a week in which we launch 40 days of prayer, when we are commanded to pray, let us not neglect prayer. Let us get together and pray and take the booklets and pray in the daily readings. 
Pray for the three people you want to see come to faith in Christ. Because if you don't ask, you won't receive. In his shocking sermon, poor Jeremiah was told by the Lord, don't bother praying for these people, it's too late. But there's a third and final shock for his hearers. Drawing to the end, a little while yet. Thirdly, senseless sacrifices. In a situation which Jeremiah just Imagine this for a moment. If you know the Bible, you know anything about God's character. Where sin flourished and God's judgment threatened, there was always one option that remained. One solution where all else had failed. One remedy which God himself had provided. What was it? It was a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. God's remedy. His provision for sin. In his law he said, For the life of the creature is in the blood. I have given it you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. One writer says, the highest bid that you could make for heaven's favour was to offer a sacrifice. But God says a third thing through Jeremiah. He says, such sacrifices will not suffice, that no sacrifice will suffice. In fact, he says two things. First of all, legitimate sacrifices are unacceptable to the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Go ahead, add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and... Eat the meat yourselves. Now, you may read that and think, well, eat the meat yourselves. What does that mean? That is absolutely shocking to a Jew. Why? Because you brought your sacrifice, it was placed on the altar, it was burnt as a sacrifice to God. The priests who were holy to the Lord were allowed to keep some meat for their own use. But to to eat the meat yourself would be like cannibalism or desecration. Think of anything worse. And the Lord says, when you bring your sacrifices, why not save your time and just barbecue the meat at home and eat it yourselves? Why? Because the Lord says, obedience precedes sacrifice. Verse 22, when I brought your forefathers out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command, obey me and I'll be your God, and you'll be my people, walk in all the ways I command you, that it may go well with you. In short, the Lord gave the people the Ten Commandments before he gave them the sacrificial system. Now, it's not as some people say, oh, well, the sacrificial system was a mistake. No, it wasn't. The sacrificial system was to help you when you broke the Ten Commandments. But God's priority was that they kept his law. But they didn't pay attention. They just went their own way, the people in Jeremiah's day. So the Lord says their sacrifices are not acceptable to him because disobedience devalues sacrifice. To keep on persistently disobeying God and yet offering sacrifices for sin devalues the sacrifice it distances the worshipper from God and this is just what happened to the people of Israel they did not listen or pay attention instead they followed the stubborn inclination of their evil hearts they went backward not forward verse 24 they didn't listen to the prophets past and present instead there is a failure to respond to correction therefore say to them this is the nation what an epitaph for God's people. This is the nation that has not obeyed the Lord, its God, or responded to correction. Truth has perished. It has vanished from their lips. You see, it should have been a time for mourning. When you hear a sermon like this, Jeremiah says, it's time to cut your hair off. For you're abandoned by God. Cut off your hair, throw it away, take up lament. On the barren hearts, for the Lord has rejected and abandoned this generation that is under his wrath. But before the Lord abandoned his people, his people had abandoned him. And when you reject the worship of the true God and a legitimate sacrifice, 
Then you end up what with? Illegitimate sacrifices. And the Lord says these are reprehensible to him. He says they've built the high places of Topheth, means oven or burning place, in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. Very interesting. In cultures throughout the world, you'll find evidence that people practice child sacrifice. And you may wonder why they do it. And you may say, well, we don't do that kind of thing, thankfully, today. But I'm not so sure. Why do you think these people did it? Well, you offer that which is dearest to you in attempt to pay the highest price to ensure my ultimate benefit rather than that of my child. And I simply say, and I say it with passion, but also with a sense of hurt for those who've gone through it, is not abortion the sacrifice of a child, or as we euphemistically call it, a fetus. Why do people do it? Well, it's for the personal benefit of the mother and the father, usually. And as we've seen, false gods always abuse their worshippers, not least those who live with lasting scars when they indulge in such things. And what applies to the individual is compounded by the effects on a whole society as Jeremiah's shocking sermon concludes with the scenes of coming judgment. I simply, friend, I just don't want to read them again because they're so terrible. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call it Topheth or the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, but the Valley of Slaughter, for they will bury their dead in Topheth until there's no more room. Even marriage celebrations will be a thing of the past. Now, friends, if you've been following this series... This is the lowest point in Jeremiah's prophecy. You may be glad about that. The terrible description of what did happen to the people of Israel. Derek Kidner in the Bible Speaks Today has a wonderful phrase. He says, their sanctuary became their mortuary. Their sanctuary became their mortuary. And if you notice reading this, unlike other places we've looked at in Jeremiah and we'll look at, There is not a glimmer of grace in this passage. There's no hope. And I ask myself, why is this the case? And here's the answer. Because it's a description of hell. A place where there is no hope. Hebrew lesson. The valley, Hebrew, gay, of Ben-Hinnom, shorted, becomes gay-Hinnom, becomes gay henna, which is the word that Jesus used again and again to describe hell. When he warned people about how we abuse our children. And if anyone, these are the words of Jesus, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands for you to go into Gehenna, into hell, where their fire never goes out. Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. Almost finished, but stay with me just for the last couple of minutes. Because after the bad news, I'm so thankful that we live in the gospel age. There is good news. Maybe God has been speaking to you this morning and over this series. Maybe there are things that you've done in the past. Maybe you're far from God this morning. Maybe you're indulging in some of the things that we've read about or their modern equivalents. 
Maybe you're suffering the scars of abortion. As a mother or a father, there is a sacrifice that is acceptable for sin. The writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews contrasts the sacrifices that were made under the old law of Moses with the sacrifice of Jesus. Hebrews 9.14 How much more, then, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself and blemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Now you reflect on that. Because that is good news. That's why we call it gospel. Final comment from Philip Ryken again. One of the things that made that sacrifice acceptable was that Jesus Christ offered himself as an atonement for sin. He was not bound and gagged by his father and dragged to Calvary against his will. If that had happened, then God the Father would have been as cruel as the parents of Ben Hinnom. But Jesus Christ willingly gave himself up for us all because of that voluntary sacrifice. There is no need to go to hell. No need, providing we heed the warning. But we can respond like the radio operator on the Titanic. Shut up, shut up, I'm busy. Let's pray together.